Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, as usual, and it's great to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning to Journey to the Center of the Earth, But before we do that, take some time now to relax and recenter. Be mindful of your entire body. Think about where you're holding tension and concentrate on allowing those areas to relax. Notice your legs and arms feeling heavy. Allow your head and neck to loosen. And even think about your facial muscles letting go. Inhale now through your nose and collect any thoughts or concerns still lingering from the day. On your exhale, watch those thoughts drift away from you. Last time, the adventurers had just begun to run out of water, and Professor Hardwick was leading the pack down a route almost certain to be doomed to fail. At length, however, the tunnel opened into what seemed to resemble a large, natural coal mine, but further progress brought the group to a solid wall. There was nothing to do but turn back. After walking for an entire day, they finally reached the original crossroads, and Harry collapsed on the earth, exhausted and severely dehydrated. Professor Hardwig held the boy and offered him the final mouthful of water he had been saving for days. Momentarily revived, Harry was outraged when the professor explained he intended to continue with an alternate route. He told Harry and Hans that if they wished to leave now, they should But Hans was steadfast as usual, and in the end, Harry yielded. By 8pm, having found nothing but more rock, the fatigued travellers halted once more. In a daze, Harry fell into a fitful sleep, but was awoke by footsteps. He saw Hans in the darkness begin to walk away. And that's where we pick our story back up. Harry, exhausted, and wondering if and why Hans would be abandoning himself and the professor with no explanation. So, close your eyes and just listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of journey to the center of the earth. Chapter 20 Water, where is it? A bitter disappointment. During a long, long, weary hour, 
there crossed my wildly delirious brain all sorts of reasons as to what could have aroused our quiet and faithful guide. The most absurd and ridiculous ideas passed through my head, each more impossible than the other. I believe I was either half or wholly mad. Suddenly, however, there arose, as it were, from the depths of the earth, a voice of comfort. It was the sound of footsteps. Hans was returning. Presently, the uncertain light began to shine upon the walls of the passage, and then it came in view, far down the sloping tunnel. At length, Hans himself appeared. He approached my uncle, placed his hand upon his shoulder, and gently awakened him. My uncle, as soon as he saw who it was, instantly arose. Well, asked the professor. Water, said the hunter. Water, murmured my uncle in a voice of deep emotion and gratitude. Where? he asked our guide in Danish. Below, Hans answered. I understood every word. I had caught the hunter by the hands, and I shook them heartily while he looked on with perfect calmness. The preparations for our departure did not take long, and soon we were making a rapid descent into the tunnel. An hour later, we had advanced a thousand yards and descended two thousand feet. At this moment, I heard an accustomed and well-known sound running along the floors of the granite rock, a kind of dull and sullen roar like that of a distant waterfall. During the first hour of our advance, not finding the discovered spring, my feelings of intense suffering appeared to return. Once more I began to lose all hope. My uncle, however, observing how downhearted I was again becoming, took up the conversation. Hans was right, he said enthusiastically. That is the dull roaring of a torrent. A torrent, I said, delighted at even hearing the welcome words. There is not the slightest doubt about it, he replied. A subterranean river is flowing beside us. I made no reply, but hastened on, once more animated by hope. I began not to even feel the deep fatigue which hitherto had overpowered me. The very sound of this glorious murmuring water already refreshed me. We could hear it increasing in volume every moment. The torrent, which for a long time could be heard flowing over our heads, now ran distinctly along the left wall, roaring, rushing, spluttering, and still falling. Several times I passed my hand across the rock, hoping to find some trace of humidity, of the slightest percolation. Alas, in vain. Again, half an hour passed in the same weary toil. Again, we advanced. It now became evident that the hunter, during his absence, had not been able to carry his researches any farther. Guided by an instinct peculiar to the dwellers in mountain regions and water finders, he smelt the living spring through the rock. 
Still, he had not seen the precious liquid. He had neither quenched his own thirst nor brought us one drop in his gourd. Moreover, we soon made the disastrous discovery that, if our own progress continued, we should soon be moving away from the torrent, the sound of which gradually diminished. We turned back, hands halted at the precise spot where the sound of the torrent appeared nearest. I could bear the suspense and suffering no longer, and seated myself against the wall, behind which I could hear the water seething and effervescing not two feet away. But a solid wall of granite still separated us from it. Hans looked keenly at me, and, strange enough, for once I thought I saw a smile on his imperturbable face. He rose from a stone on which he had been seated and took up a lamp. I could not help rising and following. He moved slowly along the firm and solid granite wall. I watched him with mingled curiosity and eagerness. Presently, he halted and placed his ear against the dry stone, moving slowly along and listening with the most extreme care and attention. I understood at once that he was searching for the exact spot where the torrent's roar was most plainly heard. This point he soon found in the lateral wall on the left side, about three feet above the level of the tunnel floor. I was in a state of intense excitement. I scarcely dared to believe what the eider duck hunter was about to do. It was, however, impossible in a moment more not to both understand and applaud and even to smother him in my embraces when I saw him raise the heavy crowbar and commence an attack upon the rock itself. Saved at last, I said. Yes, said my uncle, even more excited and delighted than myself. Hans is quite right. Oh, the worthy Excellent man, we should never have thought of such an idea. And nobody else, I think, would have done so. Such a process, simple as it seemed, would most certainly not have entered our heads. Nothing could be more dangerous than to begin to work with pickaxes in that particular part of the globe. Supposing while he was at work, a breakup were to take place, and supposing the torrent, once having gained an inch, were to take an L and come pouring boldly through the broken rock, not one of these dangers was chimerical. They were only too real. But at that moment, no fear of falling in of the roof or even of inundation, was capable of stopping us. Our thirst was so intense that to quench it, we would have dug below the bed of the ocean itself. Hans went quietly to work, a work which neither my uncle nor I would have undertaken at any price. Our impatience was so great that if we had at once begun with pickaxe and crowbar, the rock would soon have split into hundreds of fragments. The guide, on the contrary, calm, ready, moderate, wore away the hard rock by little steady blows of his instrument, making no attempt at a larger hole than about six inches. As I stood, 
I heard, or I thought I heard, the roar of the torrent momentarily increasing in loudness, and at times I almost felt the pleasant sensation of water upon my parched lips. At the end of what appeared an age, Hans had made a hole which enabled his crowbar to enter two feet into the solid rock. He had been at work exactly an hour. It appeared a dozen. I was getting wild with impatience. My uncle began to think of using more violent measures. I had the greatest difficulty in checking him. He had indeed just got hold of his crowbar when a loud and welcome hiss was heard. Then a stream, or rather a jet of water, burst through the wall and came out with such force as to hit the opposite side. Hans, the guide, who was half upset by the shock, was scarcely able to keep down a cry of pain and grief. I understood his meaning when plunging my hands into the sparkling jet I gave a wild and frantic cry. The water was scalding hot. Boiling, I said in bitter disappointment. Well, never mind, said my uncle. It will soon get cool. The tunnel began to be filled by clouds of vapor, while a small stream ran away into the interior of the earth. In a short time, we had some sufficiently cool to drink. We swallowed it in huge mouthfuls. Oh, what exalted delight! What rich and incomparable luxury! What was this water? Whence did it come? To us, what was that? The simple fact was, it was water, and though still with a tingle of warmth about it, it brought back to the heart that life which, but for it, must surely have faded away. I drank greedily, almost without tasting it. When, however, I had almost quenched my ravenous thirst, I made a discovery. Why, it is calibiate water, I said. Most excellent for settling the stomach, replied my uncle, and highly mineralized. Here is a journey worth twenty to spa. It is very good, I replied. I should think so, said he. It's water found six miles underground. There is a peculiarly inky flavor about it, which is by no means disagreeable. Hans may congratulate himself on having made a rare discovery. What do you say, nephew? According to the usual custom of travelers, to name the stream after him. Good said I, and the name of Hansbach, or Hansbrook, was at once agreed upon. Hans was not a bit more proud after hearing our determination than he was before, after having taken a very small modicum of the welcome refreshment, he had seated himself in a corner with his usual gravity. Now, said I, is it not worthwhile letting this water run to waste? What is the use? replied my uncle. The source from which this river rises is inexhaustible. Never mind, I continued. Let us fill our goatskin and gourds and then try to stop the opening up. My advice, after some hesitation, was followed 
or attempted to be followed. Hans picked up all the broken pieces of granite he had knocked out and used some tow he happened to have about him, tried to shut up the fissure he had made in the wall. All he did was scald his hands. The pressure was too great, and all our attempts were utter failures. It is evident, I remarked, that the upper surface of these springs is situated at a very great height above, as we may fairly infer from the great pressure of the jet. That is by no means doubtful, replied my uncle. If this column of water is about 32,000 feet high, the atmospheric pressure must be something enormous. But a new idea has just struck me. And what is that? I asked. Why be at so much trouble to close this aperture? He inquired. Because... I hesitated and stammered, having no real reason. When our water bottles are empty, we are not at all sure that we shall be able to fill them, observed my uncle. I think that is very probable, I replied. Well then, let this water run, he suggested. It will, of course, naturally follow in our track and will serve to guide and refresh us. I think the idea is a good one, I said in reply. And with this rivulet as a companion, there is no further reason why we should not succeed in our marvelous project. Ah, my boy, said the professor, laughing. After all, you are coming round. More than that, I said, I am now confident of ultimate success. One moment, nephew of mine, said he. Let us begin by taking some hours of repose. I had utterly forgotten that it was night. The chronometer, however, informed me of the fact Soon we were sufficiently restored and refreshed and had all fallen into a profound sleep. Chapter 21 Under the Ocean By the next day, we had nearly forgotten our past sufferings. The first sensation I experienced was surprise at not being thirsty and I actually asked myself the reason. The running stream, which flowed in rippling wavelets at my feet, was the satisfactory reply. We breakfasted with a good appetite and then drank our fill of the excellent water. I felt myself quite a new man, ready to go anywhere my uncle chose to lead. I began to think, why should not a man as seriously convinced as my uncle succeed, with so excellent a guide as Hans and so devoted a nephew as myself? These were the brilliant ideas which now invaded my brain. Had the proposition now been made to go back to the summit of Mount Snaffles, I should have declined the offer in a most indignant manner. But fortunately, there was no question of going up. We were about to descend further into the interior of the earth. Let us be moving, I said awakening the echoes of the old world. We resumed our march on Thursday at eight o'clock in the morning. The great granite tunnel, as it went round by sinuous and winding ways, presented every now and then 
sharp turns, and, in fact, all the appearance of a labyrinth. Its direction, however, was in general towards the southwest. My uncle made several pauses in order to consult his compass. The gallery now began to trend downwards in a horizontal direction with about two inches of fall in every furlong. The murmuring stream flowed quietly at our feet. I could not but compare it to some familiar spirit guiding us through the earth, and I dabbled my fingers in its tepid water, which sang like a naiad as we progressed. My good humor began to assume a mythological character. As for my uncle, he began to complain of the horizontal character of the road. His route, he found, began to be indefinitely prolonged. Instead of sliding down the celestial ray, according to his expression. But we had no choice, and as long as our road led towards the centre, however little progress we made, there was no reason to complain. Moreover, from time to time, the slopes were much greater. The naiads sang more loudly, and we began to dip downwards in earnest. As yet, however, I felt no painful sensation. I had not got over the excitement of the discovery of water. That day and the next, we did a considerable amount of horizontal and relatively very little vertical traveling. On Friday evening, the 10th of July, according to our estimation, we ought to have been 30 leagues to the southeast of Reykjavik and about two leagues and a half deep. We now received a rather startling surprise. Under our feet, there opened a horrible well. My uncle was so delighted that he actually clapped his hands as he saw how steep and sharp was the descent. Ah, he cried in rapturous delight. This will take us a long way. Look at the projections of the rock. It is a fearful staircase. Hans, however who in all our troubles had never given up the ropes, took care so as to dispose of them as to prevent any accidents. Our descent then began. I dare not call it a perilous descent, for I was already too familiar with that sort of work to look upon it as anything but a very ordinary affair. This well was a kind of narrow opening in the massive granite of the kind known as a fissure. The contraction of the terrestrial scaffolding when it suddenly cooled had been evidently the cause. If it had ever served in former times as a kind of funnel through which passed the eruptive masses expelled by snaffles, I was at a loss to explain how it had left no mark. We were, in fact, descending a spiral, something like those winding staircases in use in modern houses. We were compelled every quarter of an hour or thereabouts to sit down in order to rest our legs. Our calves ached. We then seated ourselves on some projecting rock with our legs hanging over and gossiped while we ate a mouthful, drinking still from the pleasantly warm, running stream which had not deserted us. 
It is scarcely necessary to say that in this curiously shaped fissure, the Hansbach had become a cascade to the detriment of its size. It was still, however, sufficient and more for our wants. Besides, we knew that as soon as the declivity ceased to be so abrupt, the stream must resume its peaceful course. At this moment, it reminded me of my uncle, his impatience and rage. While when it flowed more peacefully, I pictured to myself the placidity of the Icelandic guide. During the whole of two days, the 6th and 7th of July, we followed the extraordinary spiral staircase of the fissure, penetrating two leagues farther into the crust of the earth, which put us five leagues below the level of the sea. On the 8th, however, at 12 o'clock in the day, the fissure suddenly assumed a more gentle slope, still trending in a southeast direction. The road now became comparatively easy and at the same time dreadfully monotonous. It would have been difficult for matters to have turned out otherwise. Our peculiar journey had no chance of being diversified by landscape and scenery. At all events, such was my idea. At length, on Wednesday the 15th, we were actually seven leagues, or 21 miles, below the surface of the earth and 50 leagues distant from the mountain of Snaefels. Though if truth be told, we were very tired, our health had resisted all suffering, and it was in a most satisfactory state. Our traveler's box of medicaments had not even been opened. My uncle was careful to note every hour the indications of the compass, of the manometer, and of the thermometer, all of which he afterwards published in his elaborate, philosophical, and scientific account of our remarkable voyage. He was therefore able to give an exact relation of the situation. When, therefore, he informed me that we were fifty leagues in a horizontal direction, distant from our starting point, I could not suppress a loud exclamation. What is the matter now? asked my uncle. Nothing very important. Only an idea has entered my head, was my reply. Well, out with it, my boy, said he. It is my opinion that if your calculations are correct, we are no longer in Iceland, I said. Do you think so? He asked. We can very easily find out, I replied pulling out a map and compasses. You see, I said after careful measurement, that I am not mistaken. We are far beyond Cape Portland, and those fifty leagues to the southeast will take us into the open sea. Under the open sea, said my uncle, rubbing his hands with a delighted air. Yes, I said. No doubt old ocean flows over our heads. Well, my dear boy, what can be more natural? Said my uncle. Do you not know that in the neighborhood of Newcastle there are coal mines which have been worked far out under the sea? Now, my worthy uncle... The professor no doubt regarded this discovery as a very simple fact, but to me 
the idea was by no means a pleasant one. And yet, when one came to think the matter over seriously, what mattered it whether the plains and mountains of Iceland were suspended over our devoted heads, or the mighty billows of the Atlantic Ocean? The whole question rested on the solidity of the granite roof above us. However, I soon got used to the idea, for the passage, now level, now running down, and still always to the southeast, kept going deeper and deeper into the profound abysses of Mother Earth. Three days later, on the 18th day of July, on a Saturday, we reached a kind of vast grotto. My uncle here paid Hans his usual rixdollars, and it was decided that the next day should be a day of rest. Chapter 22 Sunday Below Ground I awoke on Sunday morning without any sense of hurry and bustle, attendant on an immediate departure. Though the day to be devoted to repose and reflection was spent under strange circumstances and in so wonderful a place, the idea was a pleasant one. Besides, we all began to get used to this kind of existence. I had almost ceased to think of the sun, of the moon, of the stars, of the trees, houses, and towns. In fact, about any terrestrial necessities. In our peculiar position, we were far above such reflections. The grotto was a vast and magnificent hall. Along its granitic soil, the stream flowed placidly and pleasantly. So great a distance was it now from its fiery source that its water was scarcely lukewarm and could be drunk without delay or difficulty. After a frugal breakfast, the professor made up his mind to devote some hours to putting his notes and calculations in order. In the first place, he said, I have a good many to verify and prove in order that we may know our exact position. I wish to be able on our return to the upper regions to make a map of our journey, a kind of vertical section of the globe which will be, as it were, the profile of the expedition. That would indeed be a curious work, uncle, I said. But can you make your observations with anything like certainty and precision? I can, he replied. I have never on any occasion failed to note with great care the angles and slopes. I am certain as to having made no mistake. Take the compass and examine how she points. I looked at the instrument with care. East, one quarter, southeast. Very good resumed the professor, noting the observation and going through some rapid calculations. I make out that we have journeyed 250 miles from the point of our departure. Then the mighty waves of the Atlantic are rolling over our heads, I asked. Certainly, he replied. And at this very moment, it is possible that fierce tempests are raging above and that men and ships 
are battling against the angry blasts just over our heads, I mused. It is quite within the range of possibility, rejoined my uncle, smiling. And that whales are playing in shoals, thrashing the bottom of the sea, which is the roof of our adamantine prison, I asked. Be quite at rest on that point, said he. There is no danger of their breaking through, but to return to our calculations, we are to the southeast, 250 miles from the base of Snaefels, and according to my preceding notes, I think we have gone 16 leagues in a downward direction. 16 leagues, 50 miles. I said in awe. He nodded. I am sure of it. But that is the extreme limit allowed by science for the thickness of the Earth's crust, I replied, referring to my geological studies. I do not contravene that assertion, was his quiet answer. And at this stage of our journey... According to all known laws on the increase of heat, there should be here a temperature of 1,500 degrees, I observed. There should be, you say, my boy, he replied. In which case, this granite would not exist, but be in a state of fusion, I concluded. But you perceive, my boy, that it is not so, said he, and that facts, as usual, are very stubborn things, overruling all theories. I nodded. I am forced to yield to the evidence of my senses, but I am nevertheless very much surprised. What heat does the thermometer really indicate? Continued the philosopher. Twenty-seven six-tenths, I answered. So that science is wrong by fourteen hundred and seventy-four degrees and four-tenths, my uncle calculated, according to which... It is demonstrated that the proportional increase in temperature is an exploded error. Humphrey Davy here shines forth in all his glory. He is right, and I have acted wisely to believe him. Have you any answer to make to this statement? Had I chosen to have spoken, I might have said a great deal. I in no way admitted to the theory of Humphrey Davy. I still held out for the theory of proportional increase of heat, though I did not feel it. I was far more willing to allow that this chimney of an extinct volcano was covered by lava of a kind of refractory to heat. In fact, a bad conductor which did not allow the great increase of temperature to percolate through its sides. The hot water jet supported my view of the matter. But without entering on a long and useless discussion or seeking for new arguments to controvert my uncle, I contented myself with taking up facts as they were. Well, sir, I take for granted that all your calculations are correct, I replied. But allow me to draw from them a rigorous and definite conclusion. Go on, my boy. Have your say, said my uncle good-humouredly. At the place where we are now, 
under the latitude of Iceland, the terrestrial depth is about 1,583 leagues, I said. 1,583 and a quarter, he corrected. Well, I continued, suppose we say 1,600 in round numbers. Now, out of a voyage of 1,600 leagues, we have completed 16. As you say, what then? He asked, at the expense of a diagonal journey of no less than 85 leagues. I went on. Exactly, he replied. We have been 20 days about it. I said. He agreed. Exactly twenty days. Now sixteen is the hundredth part of our contemplated expedition, said I. If we go on in this way, we shall be two thousand days. That's about five years and a half going down. The professor folded his arms and listened but did not speak. Without counting that if a vertical descent of 16 leagues costs us a horizontal of 85, I went on, we shall have to go about 8,000 leagues to the southeast, and we must, therefore, come out somewhere in the circumference long before we can hope to reach the center bother your calculations, replied my uncle in one of his usual old rages. On what basis do they rest? How do you know that this passage does not take us direct to the end we require? Moreover, I have in my favor, fortunately, a precedent. What I have undertaken to do Another has done, and he having succeeded. Why should I not be equally successful? I hope indeed you will, I said. You are allowed to hold your tongue, said Professor Hardwig, when you talk so unreasonably as this. I saw at once that the old doctorial professor was still alive in my uncle, and fearful to rouse his angry passions, I dropped the unpleasant subject. Now then, he explained, consult the manometer. What does that indicate? A considerable amount of pressure, said I. Very good, he said. You see then that by descending slowly and by gradually accustoming ourselves to the density of this lower atmosphere, we shall not suffer. Well, I suppose not, except it may be a certain amount of pain in the ears, was my rather grim reply. That, my dear boy, is nothing he said, and you will easily get rid of that source of discomfort by bringing the exterior air in communication with the air contained in your lungs. Perfectly, said I, for I had quite made up my mind in no wise to contradict my uncle. I should fancy almost that I should experience a certain amount of satisfaction in making a plunge into this dense atmosphere. Have you taken note of how wonderfully sound is propagated? Of course I have, he said. But then, uncle, I ventured mildly to observe, this density will continue to increase. Yes, according to a law which, however, is scarcely defined, he said. 
It is true that the intensity of weight will diminish just in proportion to the depth to which we go. You know very well that it is on the surface of the earth that its action is most powerfully felt, while on the contrary, in the very center of the earth, bodies cease to have any weight at all. I know that is the case, I replied. But as we progress, will not the atmosphere finally assume the density of water? I know it when placed under the pressure of 710 atmospheres, said my uncle with imperturbable gravity. And when we are still lower down? I asked with natural anxiety. Well, lower down, the density will become even greater, he answered. Then how shall we be able to make our way through this atmospheric fog? I asked. Well, my worthy nephew, we must ballast ourselves by filling our pockets with stones, said Professor Hardwig. Faith, uncle, you have an answer for everything, was my only reply. I began to feel that it was unwise of me to go any farther into the wide field of hypotheses, for I should certainly have revived some difficulty, or rather, some impossibility, that would have enraged the professor. It was evident, nevertheless, that the air under a pressure which might be multiplied by thousands of atmospheres would end by becoming perfectly solid, and that then admitting our bodies resisted the pressure, we should have to stop, in spite of all the reasonings in the world. Facts overcome all arguments. But I thought it best not to urge this argument. My uncle would simply have quoted the example of Saknusum. Supposing the learned Icelander's journey ever really to have taken place, there was one simple answer to be made. In the 16th century, neither the barometer nor the manometer had been invented. How then could Saknusum have been able to discover when he did reach the center of the earth. This unanswerable and learned objection I, however, kept to myself, and bracing up my courage, I awaited the course of events, little aware of how adventurous yet were to be the incidents of our remarkable journey. The rest of this day of leisure and repose was spent in calculation and conversation. I made it a point to agree with the professor in everything, but I envied the perfect indifference of Hans, who, without taking any such trouble about the cause and effect, went onwards wherever destiny chose to lead him.